If you can dream the perfect national park vacation, you can create it with Trip Canvas from AAA Travel, the all-in-one platform that lets you research, plan, and book the ultimate getaway. Trip Canvas. Let's go somewhere. As you enter any one of our scenic U.S. national parks, it's easy to feel overcome by the landscape. Whether it's the sprawling mountain vistas of Yellowstone, the sky-high peaks of Rocky Mountain, or the sunset-tinged sandstone reaching toward the blue skies of Arches, this is nature at its best. If you're a regular listener, then you might recognize today's guest. Gary Arndt joined us just before the holidays last year to help you choose the best tech gadgets for your travels. Today, he's back to share his expertise on our majestic national parks. Since 2007, Gary has made world exploration his full-time job. He's traveled to over 200 countries and visited all seven continents. These experiences have inspired a deep curiosity about the world. His podcast, Everything, Everywhere, is a reflection of his experiences out in the world. Welcome back to the show, Gary. There are few people who have such a comprehensive knowledge about our national park system. Can you tell us how this passion started for you? So in the 90s, I had an internet company and I would travel on business and I would always do like a Saturday layover to get a cheaper ticket. And I would always use that opportunity to stay an extra day. And I'd always go visit park sites around wherever I was visiting, whether it was in New York or Philadelphia or San Francisco or LA, there's always something outside the city that you could go visit. So I began amassing this. And then 2007, I sold my home and began traveling the world full time. And I would come back to the US and I would usually go on these enormous road trips where I would put on 10, 12,000 miles traveling through the United States and Canada, visiting these parks. One of the things you mention on your website is that the park system comprises more than just national parks. Can you talk about that? So in addition to the national parks, there are a whole bunch of other sites that the National Park Service operates that are part of the national park system. These are historic sites, monuments, battlefields, and whatnot. And there's about four high boosters, currently 426 sites. And I've been to... 226 of them. So I've been to over half of the sites, which can be anything from, you know, as big as Devil's Tower in Wyoming to something really tiny, like the Thaddeus Kosciuszko Monument in Philadelphia, which is the smallest place in the park system. Can you tell us what makes this place so special? It's in Philadelphia. And Thaddeus Kosciuszko was a Polish immigrant who, who was an engineer who fought in the American Revolution and was responsible for building the chain across the Hudson River that protected West Point so the British couldn't sail up the river. It's just this very small little place, but there's other ones like it. There's other larger ones you can go. There's many Civil War battlefields that are scattered all throughout the South. And when you're there, you can get a feel for the landscape of the battle, how everyone lined up, things like that. The Dayton Aviation National Historic Park, which celebrates like the Wright brothers and the history of aviation. But there's lots of these sites all over the country that people just aren't aware of. And, 
you go there and you can, I'd say nine times out of 10, you're gonna probably have at least some sort of pleasant experience learning about something that you otherwise didn't know about before. What do you think is so captivating about the national park experience? Every national park is completely different. And there really isn't a kind of universal experience you can give to all parks. Some are in the middle of the Alaskan wilderness like Wrangell-St. Elias. Some like Hot Springs in Arkansas is in the middle of a city. Some are conveniently located next to a large city and some are well and truly in the middle of nowhere and it takes you hours to get there by driving. Road trips are becoming more and more popular these days. Can you describe the most scenic drives you've experienced in national parks? Tell us a little bit about where you went, what time of year it was, and what made it such a rich experience for you. Yosemite is great, especially if you're there in the spring. The experience you can have in Yosemite is going to be radically different because of the waterfalls. Yosemite has some of the highest waterfalls in North America, and they're going to be going full blast in the spring because of all the snowmelt. If you go there, say, in October or September, they may be near dead because there just isn't as much water flowing anymore. So that's always a great thing to see if you're going in the spring and also to drive all the way through Yosemite. Because once you get to the other side of Yosemite, it's a completely different world. If you're entering from the west, most people are probably going to be coming in from San Francisco. You're entering in through the Central Valley. But when you leave, you're on the other side of the mountains and it's very desolate. There are very few people that live there. You can go to places like Bodie, Mono Lake, and it's just a completely different world that you're passing through as you go through the park. What about any off-the-beaten-path parks that offer scenic drives? Very few people make the drive to the north to go to Great Basin. And one, driving there is an incredible experience because you experience viscerally just how empty Nevada is. Outside of Las Vegas and maybe some stuff around Reno, there's nothing in the state. And I mean nothing, I mean nothing, nothing. Driving around the Australian outback levels of nothing. So to get up to, to Great Basin is really an experience. And then when you're there, they have some fantastic caves in the park. They have some of the world's oldest trees, the bristlecone pine that are located in the park. And again, it's a unique environment that isn't really represented by any other sort of park. Wind Cave is often overlooked in South Dakota. Because people, you know, it's in the name, it's a cave. And the cave really is exceptional and amazing. But on the surface, you'll see things like bison and prairie dogs and a prairie environment, which isn't really represented by very many parks. Parks tend to go for the sexy mountain locations and things like that. And yet the Great Plains and the prairies are probably the biggest single part of the United States by area, and it's not really represented in a whole lot of Park Service sites. What are the biggest issues you see that are affecting our most popular national parks? The biggest one is probably over-tourism. And the problem with over-tourism isn't that there are too many tourists, it's that there are too many tourists going to the same place at the same time. And it tends to be the popular parks in the summer when kids have time off from school. If you can simply avoid those peak times, you're fine for the most part. Like I said, if you, if you visit Yosemite, say before Memorial Day, you'll probably have a much better experience than if you go after Memorial Day. There won't be as many families there, plus the water is gonna be running, so the, the waterfalls will be full steam. That's really, I think, the biggest thing is that 
that if you visit at the very peak season, you're going to have a profoundly different experience than if you visit during, say, a shoulder season and arguably a much worse experience just because there are so many people that are visiting some of these parks. What should people do to avoid this? Do you have alternative suggestions? The biggest thing you can do is to just not visit those popular parks. There are certain parks, you know, the big three are Yosemite, Yellowstone, and the Grand Canyon. Those have captured people's attention. They're in the, the, the popular consciousness. But there's a lot of parks in the park system that are amazing places to visit, a lot of which people just don't know about. Can you tell us about an experience you've had at a park that isn't as widely known? One that always sticks out to me is visiting Wrangell St. Elias National Park in Alaska. I had the pleasure of being there during the last weekend that it was open, which is usually in like early, mid-September. And all the trees were, were changing colors. You have this massive glacier. You have the historical remnants of copper mine, and we went hiking on the glacier. It was, it was really an incredible experience. And it's a park that uh, a lot of people aren't aware of, even though they may take trips to Alaska. And it, it's one of the few parks in Alaska you can actually drive to. Yet most people completely ignore it, and it's, it's, it's both one of the least visited and the, it is the largest national park in the U.S. park system. It's bigger than Switzerland, and it still doesn't get very many visitors. Wow, yeah. Alaska has such spectacular beauty. Why do you think these places remain so off the radar? Most people that go to Alaska, you're on a cruise, you go through Glacier Bay, and maybe you take a train up to Denali, and that's all they experience. But there are eight parks in Alaska. There are two of which, Wrangell St. Elias and Kenai Fjords, that are accessible by car. In the case of Kenai Fjords, you have to take a boat trip once you get there. And then the other four parks are much more difficult to get to because you have to fly in on a bush plane. But they're really incredible experiences, and you'll be able to see things that you will never see anywhere else in the park system. Well, if you have access to a car in Alaska, what's the best destination for a national park road trip? One of the best and, and this is an interesting thing that a lot of people don't know. Denali National Park is a single 92-mile road that goes into the park. For most of the year, the only way you can get on that road is on a bus. So you get on a bus in the visitor center, you can drive all the way there and back. But one weekend a year, towards the end of the season, they have a lottery where people can drive their own cars. And I know some friends that have won the lottery it's not like the Powerball or anything, but if you submit for it early enough, and I, I would say if you were to, to submit your name for five years in a row, there's a good chance one of those five you'll probably win. Then you could rent a car in Anchorage or something and drive to Denali and actually drive the road yourself and stop where you want and take pictures of wildlife. For anyone out there who does have to abide by the school schedule, and their heart is set on one of these big three parks, what advice would you give them to have a more enjoyable experience? For example, we know that Yosemite has done away with their reservation system, and some people are waiting two to three hours to get into the park this summer. If you're waiting that much to go into Yosemite, in the amount of time you're gonna sit in your car and wait, you could drive down to Kings Canyon and Sequoia National Park, which is just south of Yosemite, and have an amazing experience and see the giant sequoia trees and things like that and not have to sit in your car. So Gary, Arches and other big national parks in Southern Utah get some of the highest numbers of visitors. If you had to recommend a few alternatives that might offer a similar but less crowded experience, where would you suggest? The parks in Utah are known as the big five. 
They've all become pretty popular. I'd say Arches is probably the most popular. Bryce Canyon and Zion are popular because they're accessible from Las Vegas. One thing that people can do is to go east into eastern or into western Colorado, into the area of the Colorado Plateau. And you have areas like Colorado National Monument and Dinosaur National Monument. They don't have the title of national park, but they are certainly national park worthy and are very similar to the kind of things that you'll be seeing in that area. Any other lesser known parks you'd recommend? I'm going to go with one from my own home state, uh, the Apostle Islands National Lakeshore. So if you look at a map of Wisconsin, at the very uppermost tip, there's a small archipelago of islands, and those are the Apostle Islands. And it really should be a national park. And I'm hoping at someday in the future it will be. But again, it's a place that a lot of people just don't bother to visit. And in the summer, you can go kayaking amongst the islands and Lake Superior. Fantastic experience. But in the winter, and it doesn't happen every winter, there's a phenomenon where these ice caves develop. And the conditions have to be just right, like Goldilocks conditions, not too cold, not too not cold. The wind has to be right. And some of the caves along the shore will just become filled on the inside with icicles. And if you go and you can find images of it, it hasn't happened for the last several years because I've been checking. But when the conditions are right and that occurs, these ice caves are simply absolutely incredible and one of the best things to see in the whole park system, I think. Wow, that sounds pretty magical. How can people stay updated on the likelihood of this ever occurring? Uh, Apostle Islands National Lakeshore has a Facebook page. Go there, follow it. And then they post updates in the winter as to what the status of things are. So you may, you may only have a small window to go and see it when it happens. What's another hidden gem in the northern part of the U.S.? If you wanted to, you could go to Isle Royale and pretty much just walk up because nobody could bother us to go there. It's the least visited park in the continental United States, but it's, it's really one of the most special because so few people visit. I'm here in Southern California. Any spots you'd recommend that aren't as tourist-heavy? Death Valley, every so often they'll have, like, rain, and you get these amazing blooms. There's the Devil's Racetrack, which if you ever get a chance to go, where these rocks moved, and for decades nobody knew how the rocks moved, and they left paths, and they didn't know if it was wind, and they did all these experiments to see how it moved. Badwater Basin is obviously the lowest point in, in North America. I've known people that have gone there simply because it was incredibly hot. It's like they went during the hottest time of the year. Make sure to bring a lot of water. That would be a great place to go. And there's an ex if you really are intrepid and you really want to go do something that's different, there is a national monument very close to the border of, in Southern California and Nevada called Castle Mountains National Monument. There are no visitor center. There's no roads. I think there's one sign, and that sign's on a dirt road. So you really have to go to your way to find it. And... You have to drive through, I think, another national monument to get there. And so hardly anyone even knows it exists because there's nothing surrounding it. But just to get there is quite an accomplishment. And I think that's something real special. But right outside from where you live, you have the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area that you're probably familiar with. And uh, there's a lot of historic sites there. And even like the Cesar Chavez National Monument's not that far away. And that's something you can visit. <laughs> Thank you. 
Let's talk about how to narrow down the best park for your needs. Are there certain parks that are a better fit for families with young children? Or what about solo travelers or those with limited mobility? There are parks that are more closer to urban areas, they're closer to infrastructure, and then there are parks that are further away and more remote. So I previously mentioned Isle Royale. Isle Royale is a national park that is located on an island in Lake Superior. To get there, you have to get on a boat, and then once you're there, it's basically wilderness. Your only options are camping. It has the longest stay of any visitor to any national park because people just tend to camp there for, for an extended period of time. That might not be the best place to take little kids. Whereas Theodore Roosevelt National Park, which is in Western North Dakota, that is located right off the interstate, quite literally right off the interstate. There are plenty of services around it in the, the, the nearby city. So you can drive into the park. There's a wonderful drive where you can see bison, wild horses, mule deer, all kinds of things. And it's a very accessible park, even though if a lot of people don't visit because it, it happens to be in Western North Dakota. We've talked a lot about parks in the West. Is there a park in the eastern U.S. you'd recommend? Another great park that, that's often overlooked is Dry Tortugas National Park. Dry Tortugas is at the very end of the Florida Keys. So a lot of people may visit the Florida Keys on vacation. But to get to Dry Tortugas, because it's an island, you either have to take a boat or you have to take a float plane to get there. But once you're there, it's a lot of fun. And I think it'd be a great place to take kids because it's all sand. And you can camp on the beach if you want. You could probably camp there without a tent, to be honest, unless it's, you know, you know it's going to be raining. There's uh, Fort Jefferson there, which is a historic fort. And it probably will be one of the best places in the Florida Keys if you just want to go like swimming and snorkeling. Yeah, I've actually heard of this. I'm not super familiar with all of the national parks, but I've heard of this one. It's popped up like maybe on Instagram as a suggested place to go. I didn't realize how difficult it is to get to, but also how family friendly it could be. Yeah, and the same is true with the Everglades. The Everglades is very close to Miami. If you happen to be there, you can go take a fan boat tour or something like that. Not a place you probably want to camp, and it's not really necessary to camp, but it's a very unique environment that's different than, you know, all the other national parks and something you could very easily go with kids. How about a few tips for solo travelers? The biggest thing with the solo travelers, you have more flexibility in terms of where you can go and when you can go because you're not dependent upon school schedules or your spouse's work schedule or things like that, you know, whatever's good for you is good for you. And that's, that's how I've done most of my travels. If someone's traveling solo, it just gives you more opportunity. The one thing you might be able to do that would be cheaper than if you were traveling with other people is to visit some of the parks in Alaska that require you to fly in because you're normally paying per passenger and that will quickly add up. Whereas if you're just, if it's just one person and you wanted to say, so there's some companies that offer a tour of the two parks north of the Arctic Circle, Gates of the Arctic and Kobuk Valley. And you can actually go on a flight scene tour and visit both of those parks in a single day, which is really the only way you can visit them. There's no visitor centers, there's no facilities, there's no signs, there's no trails, there's no roads, there's nothing there, complete and total wilderness. So, a flight like that is really the only way you can experience those parks. And that's obviously a lot cheaper to do if you're by yourself. Now, is purchasing in America the Beautiful National Parks and Federal Recreational Lands Annual Pass really worth it? And can you tell our listeners a little bit about what it has and 
who this might be the best park pass for. If you're planning on visiting any number of parks, like you're going on a road trip, it is absolutely worth it. Especially if you're visiting some of the more popular parks as buying the pass will easily pay for your entrance if you just visit say two or three, uh, especially if you have a car full of people. But basically it gives you unlimited entry into all the parks. Uh, I haven't checked the price what it is this year, but it's well worth it. And I think if you're over 65, you can get a lifetime pass um, that is even more worth it. Once you reach that age, you're crazy if you don't do it because it's such a good deal. The other thing I would recommend is uh, getting the National Park Passport. The Passport program has been around for decades. Every National Park Service site has a passport station where you can go and get your passport stamped. And it'll record the date of the visit and uh, where it is. And it's great for kids, but there's a lot of adults that do it too. Sometimes if I don't have it with me, like I forgot it, and I'll just put it on a piece of paper or something, sometimes they'll have additional stamps. And you have to find out where the stamp station is in a lot of places too, because they may have multiple visitor centers. But that's always another way to kind of, that's kind of fun, and it's a way to document your travels. Wow, what a great idea for a keepsake for kids and adults alike. Gary Arndt, thank you for joining us. And thank you, our listeners, for being with us. If you're planning a trip, be sure to connect with a AAA travel advisor. Check out AAA.com forward slash travel or visit your local branch. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. I'm Mary Herondine. Thank you for traveling with AAA. AAA.